We are at the point in our service where we take time to open God's word and hear what he's saying. If you do not have a Bible, we have uh, ushers who will go through the overflow or the auditorium, and if you can just indicate to them that you need a Bible, they'll make sure one's distributed to you in keeping with COVID protocol. Meanwhile, you can be opening to Matthew chapter 28, be reading verses 18 to 20. If you're using the Bible that's been distributed that looks like this, it's on page 835, page 835. As was mentioned, this is the kickoff of our missions week, and so um, this is a sermon from God's Word related to the heart of God for missions. One habit we have in our church, um, just to, to show reverence to God when His Word is read, Prior to the sermon, we stand for the reading of God's word. So I'd invite you to do that. Stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You can be seated as we pray together. Father, no work will be done apart from your Spirit right now. Cause your word Go deep into our hearts, into our thoughts, really shaping us, changing us. We together open our hearts to the work your spirit would do. And we ask that you would do it. In Christ's name, amen. I aim to set before us this morning one command from Jesus. Actually, one word, 11 letters in Greek, two letters in In the English, the word go. Our entire sermon devoted to those two letters, G-O. As such, I think it is the shortest passage I've ever preached on. Doesn't mean it'll be the shortest sermon, though. Shortest passage, but with the longest view. Because I'm not especially concerned about how this sermon impacts our church this afternoon or in the weeks ahead. I'm much more concerned about how this sermon affects our our church five years and ten years from now. It's a little bit like planting a, a seed of a fruit tree. We're planting that seed now. There are things we need to do today and this week and in the coming months to help this seed become a sapling and that sapling become a young tree and that young tree to become a mature tree that bears fruit. But what you're doing at that moment when you plant the seed isn't so much about the next few days. It's about that mature tree that's producing fruit. So as we consider this word go, it is a short passage but with a long view. And the way I'm going to go about it today is I'm going to make three assertions about this command. 
three assertions about this word, go. And the first assertion is this. It is a command. It is a command. Now that might seem fairly obvious at face value, but it actually isn't the most intuitive thing. There are many people who don't think it is a command, and that's because in this passage, the Great Commission, there are, um, there, there's actually one main verb. The main verb in this, in this commission, these words that Jesus said, is make disciples. And with that main verb are three what are called participles, words in English we usually end in ind, ing, like I think we call them a gerund in, in English, but it's going, baptizing, teaching. So these are three ways that we make, or three things we do as we go about making disciples. You could translate it then, going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. Some go as far then to say that the better way to translate this passage is, as you go, make disciples, baptizing and teaching. But there's a problem with that way of approaching it. It's wrong. Seriously, grammatically, it's wrong. I'm going to get into a little Greek lesson here, but this participle going is called a participle of attendant circumstance. What that means is it's stating the condition that must be true in order for the main verb to come about. And if any time in Greek when there's a, particle of, a participle of attendant circumstances and a, a main verb that follows, that participle has the force of a command because the command cannot be true unless the attendant circumstances are true. And so one Greek scholar named Bill Mounts, very respected, looked at every single time this word go is used as a participle of attendant circumstances in the New Testament, 27 times, and he concluded, in every case the participle should be translated as an imperative, that is, as a command. So you're glad to know now that your English translation is a good translation when it translates it as a command. All that to say then, when Jesus commands the church to go, he means go. It is a command. But when Jesus gives the church the command, it's not like a a general who's in his finest garb, sitting upon his stallion, telling the troops, go into battle, as he stands behind and tells the trumpeter to sound the charge. Jesus is like the general who's been on the front lines, and he's his, his uniform is torn and filthy. He's got blood dripping down his face. And he's rallying the troops again, holding out his sword, charging the front, saying, go. Jesus is the ultimate goer. He embodies going. He is the eternal Son of God living from eternity past in perfect fellowship with the Father. And do you know what he did? He left. He went. 
he goed to this earth. Swimming as a little baby in a uterus. Going and, and laying with the prickly straw of a manger. And as he grew up as a young man, literally going to all the regions to proclaim the good news of the coming kingdom. He had no place to lay his head. And he went, he went so far as to go to the cross. And to take our sin on himself. So that God's love could be poured out on us. He absorbed the wrath of God that we deserved. And then he went to death itself. And tasted death to show that he had borne the full weight of sin. He died. Though he was sinless. And then he rose up and continued on this earth for a time. And it's this Jesus, this going Jesus, who stands before us and says, Go. Assertion number one it is a command. Assertion number two, it is a command for us. It is a command for us. Again, this might seem obvious, but it actually isn't. You'll notice that the Great Commission starts in verse 16 with the 11 disciples. This this commission was given to the 11 disciples that Jesus had hand-selected. And this commission given to them, who would become the apostles, that is the sent out ones, mobilized them to go and bring the gospel to the then known world, the far reaches of the then known world. So as you see it played out in time, These 11 were the ones who were given the commission, and these 11 are the ones who go out and teach and tell people what Jesus had said and make disciples and baptize. Even if you think about the rest of the teaching of the New Testament as it relates to how we're supposed to obey Scripture, or uh, how we're supposed to make the gospel known, we saw this just a few weeks ago. The real emphasis of the rest of the Scripture is to be people who give ourselves to prayer, to people, to be people who are humble and do good, who are kind, meek, gentle, to be people whose speech is so seasoned with the salt of the gospel that conversations begin where the gospel and the hope that we have is made evident. You don't see much in the rest of the New Testament telling us to go. And so is this a command that was just given to the apostles? Or is it a command for all of us? 
because of some of the reasons that I gave, I, for a long time in my life, had some questions of whether this was a command for all of us. I thought maybe it was something that was unique, certainly had implications for us, but unique to the apostles. And then, seven years ago, I started a series in Matthew in this church, and I realized that I was wrong, or that my questions were wrong. Because the book of Matthew as we saw then, is a discipleship manual. It's all moving towards this final speech. Six years ago, at the end of the series, I stood before this church and said these words, in some sense, these verses, the Great Commission, are the point of the whole book. This is the aim of Matthew's letter, the point of application he's been driving at all along. Did you notice how quickly he moved to this after the resurrection? Did you notice how abruptly he ends it? It's just a drop-the-mic moment. It's even in the structure of Matthew. Jesus' recorded ministry begins with a sermon on a mountain in Galilee in Galilee, at the end of which people are marveling at his authority, and now his recorded ministry ends with another message on a mountain in Galilee. At the beginning of it, he asserts his own authority. These are bookends to Jesus' ministry. We could talk about other reasons as well, that this is clearly for us, because it's not just the apostles who are baptizing, it's all Christians, the church throughout the ages, Right? It's not just the apostles who would teach. It's not just the, disciples, uh, the apostles who are given the comfort of God's presence with them. And so why would the command go be only given to the apostles? This command, go, is for the church. Matthew places it here at the drop the mic moment, the end of his gospel, as a command for the church. And as the church then, we need to think carefully about how we obey it. God has called us as a church, Maple Avenue Baptist Church, to go. Now, as we've... Uh, had several, you know, every year we have a missions festival. We've talked about what it means to be a church that goes, and we've talked about how we see modeled in Acts. It's not that every believer goes. It's they, they find a few in their midst, and sometimes one, sometimes a couple, and they send them out. And so the, the, the church collectively obeys the command to go. Some are the ones who actually go, and the other ones are the ones who send. We've used uh, William Carey's illustration of holding the rope a man who says, I'm willing to go explore this, this dark, deep shaft, but I'm going to tie this rope, and you guys need to hold the rope for me and be committed to that. I'll go down if you hold the rope. And so we've talked about the need as a sending church to be praying, laboring in prayer consistently. We've talked about the need to be giving of our means to support the work. We've talked about being, uh, uh, providing friendship, Staying connected with them, knowing what's going on in their lives, letting them know what's going on in our lives, going and visiting them when they come back, making sure that they have a place that's a refuge for them when they return. We've talked about these ways of sending, and that's part of how we fulfill this commission to go. 
But I've been reflecting on this word, this command, and I've been praying about it for some time. And I believe that part of what will mark the maturity of this church is when those from among ourselves are raised up and sent out. Now, I'm not saying, I, I don't hope our church ever thinks we've arrived and we're mature. So I'm not, don't don't over, overtake that, but I think that is a true sign of health within a church. That people from, from among themselves. Now, at some level, I feel like we've done this. You think of Jeff Smythe, who grew up and was really raised by this church, a single mom and a bunch of people in this church pouring into him, and he's still reaching youth in Scarborough. Or you think of the Nielsens who came here knowing they wanted to be missionaries but needing a, a, a home church that would send them. You can even think of the Brakes who knew they wanted to be in ministry but came here and their heart for the world expanded and now they're in Quebec trying to help reach that area. But, but I, I think there's even one level up that we can go. People who are part of our church, not because, hey, I know I want to be in ministry. But as a result of what's being here, that heart is cultivated. And then they go, and they go to places where there is no gospel outpost. Places where there would not otherwise be the gospel being made known. Crossing culture, leaving comfort zone, going. I believe that's something that should be happening for our church. I, I say I believe. I think, prayerfully, I think that Jesus' word go here has those implications for us. And so, parents, which of our kids are going to be the ones who go? And what are we doing with our families to create the culture in which the incubator that would allow them to raise up and be rise up or grow up and be those who go out. What are we doing in our children's ministry and our, our youth ministry to cultivate this environment? I think I think just if you're saying, hey, that, I do want that as a parent, what can I do? Let me just give four quick things. I'll, you know, these aren't well-researched, but I think from, from what I know, these are four things that we can do. First is we can pray. Pray that our children would grow up to make the gospel known and that some of them would go out with the gospel. Pray on your own. Pray with your spouse. If you're not a parent, pray for the kids of our church. Gather with others and pray. Secondly, we need this this environment to be a gospel-rich environment where we speak of the gospel and his word is central because that's the tool the Holy Spirit uses to quicken hearts. We need to see Christ and all that he offers. So gospel-rich culture. But, but third is kind of an extension of that. We want to expose them to people who are making bold decisions in light of the gospel. 
I don't just mean people out there, though. I think something like the video of Reza, one of our missionaries, is a great part of that. But I mean people in here. And we ourselves need to be living it out boldly so that our kids can see that. And last, I think it's important that we develop an open heart to other cultures, other nations. Cultivate an openness. Part of that is just having a church that has other nations present and celebrating that. Part of that is how we interact with other ethnicities that are increasingly um, around us. Part of it is the food we eat, the things we talk about, the stories we tell. Maybe it involves missions trips or, or vacations, carefully, strategically planned. I think of um, the great Christian missionary Jim Elliott, who was a martyr in Ecuador. And before leaving on the mission field, he wrote this in a letter to his parents. Grieve not then if your son seems to desert you, but rejoice rather seeing the will of God done gladly. Remember how the psalmist described children? He said they were as a heritage from the Lord and that every man should be happy who had his quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full of but arrows? And what are arrows for but to shoot? So with the strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them straight at the enemy's hosts. May it be so in our church. What about, what about the young people in our church who are unencumbered? Maybe you're not married yet or your children are still young. How many of you are, are willing to raise your hand and say, I'm willing to go? Maybe some of you in your head are raising your hand right now. Or as you pray and consider this sermon in the days ahead, you'll think, I'm raising my hand. I want our church to not be a microwave, but an incubator. Sometimes we think, okay, someone's willing to go to the mission field? All right, microwave them. Let's get them out. Let's get them out. And you know what? You talk to missionaries who are on the field good missionaries, and they'll say so many of the missionaries on the field aren't healthy or they're doing very little for the gospel. And much of the resources of the, the, the teams, the, the sending teams, the missionary teams out there are given to dealing with internal conflict and all the exhaustion that comes from unhealthy people. I'm not saying every conflict is because of unhealthy people on the missions field, but there are examples of that. So we want to be people who are, who are taking the hard steps, the incubator steps, the, the things that take time to raise up the right people, or to raise up people who are willing to get them ready. And our church is willing to do that for you if you're willing to put up your hand. But it's going to take time. Things like theological training to make sure you have your foundation in order. Things like seeing that you're actually living out these principles now, that you're bringing out the gospel and reaching people the gospel now, not expecting you to do it in a place that's way harder than here. And things like making sure you have a godliness, kind of a godly lifestyle, a godly character kind of 
deeply embedded in practice so that when you're in the awful and difficult circumstances, the trying circumstances that missionaries face, you have the foundation you need. It's not just young people. I know of families who've just uprooted themselves in obedience to the call of Christ. I know of retired people who've said, now I have an opportunity to go. Who's going to raise their hand? Who are going to be the people who go? Second assertion. It is a command for us. For us as a church. Most important thing we can do, if that's true, is pray. I mentioned William Carey earlier. He's one of the people who kind of was the impetus for the modern missions movement a couple hundred years ago. And he, uh, he one of the documents that's looked to as, as, as something that lit that fire has a super, super long title, because they liked really long titles that, back then. And so it's been summarized as an inquiry. And in that he writes, one of the first and most important of the duties which are incumbent upon us is fervent and united prayer. However the influence of the Holy Spirit may be set as set at naught and run down by many, it will be found upon trial that all means which we can use without it, that is without prayer, will be ineffectual. If a temple is raised for God in the heathen world, it will not be by might nor by power nor by the authority of the magistrate or the eloquence of the orator but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts, we must therefore be in real earnest in supplicating his blessings upon our labors. It worked then. I believe it will work today. It is a command for us. Assertion number three is a command for us rooted in God's heart for the nation. It is a command for us rooted in God's heart for the nations. I want, to, um, I want to consider the why. Why is Jesus calling us to go? You know why I'm answer, what the answer to that is. It's because of his heart for the nations. And I, I want to show you that two ways. One is grammatically, and two is from the whole of Scripture. First, grammatically... We already saw how that word go is a participle attached to the main verb, make disciples. But that word, that command, make disciples, is actually a transitive verb. And for those who, like me, don't remember what a transitive verb is, it's a, it's a verb that requires an object. Like if I say, hey, hey, Bill, throw. Well, what am I supposed to throw? It's a word that needs an object. It needs something to throw. Throw the ball. Hey, throw the ball. The word make disciples is like that. In fact, I saw one person who tried to capture this by, by translating it, discipleize. Go and discipleize. Well, who are we supposed to discipleize? I know you're like, hey, I came for a sermon. I didn't expect a grammar lesson, and we've done a lot of that today. But I, I, I'm doing that today. I don't normally do that, right? I'm doing that today because I really want us to understand what's going on with this word Go. I want us to linger over it. And the command go is related to this 
command disciples. And who are we to disciples? What does it say? All nations, all the ethnic groups, all the families of the earth. And you see how that works. If God's heart is for all nations to be reached, we're going to have to go to them. Yes, in a place like Jerusalem, where those 11 apostles started out, there were many cultures that were there. In a place like Rome, where Paul would eventually be stationed, there were many cultures there. In a place like Toronto, there are many cultures. But still, if the, all the nations of the earth are going to be reached, we must go. That's the logic grammatically. And it's really the logic of all of Scripture. Those of us who've been part of the Genesis series saw this foundation. Remember, God creates the whole world. Adam rebels and it, leashes, it unleashes It unleashes death and sin on all of the world. And God initiates a rescue plan that's for all of the world. And how does he begin his rescue plan in Genesis 12? He calls Abram, and what does he tell him to do? To go. Go so that he can be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Genesis 12. Then you move to Psalm 67. Genesis 12, Psalm 67, where the people of Israel are given a prayer to sing to God that says, God, be merciful to us. Cause your face to shine upon us. Why? So that your saving power may be made known among all the nations. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. We sang a song at the beginning of the service based on Psalm 67. The heartbeat of the Old Testament isn't just Israel. It's reaching Israel so that through them, all the families of the earth could be blessed. That's God's heart. And so you take that to Matthew 28, the Great Commission, which we've looked at, and he's calling us to go to all the nations, and then you bring that forward again to Ephesians 4, where it shows how is discipleship done. It's done in the context of a local church, and then you bring that all the way to Revelation 7, when there's a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, and there in the new heavens and the new earth, there's people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language praising God. The heartbeat of God is for all the nations to hear. So, it's a command for us rooted in God's heart that for all peoples, for all nations. Now, one implication of this is that we should have our hearts particularly burdened for what are called unreached people groups. That is, people who wouldn't otherwise have access to the gospel. Now it's true that there are many people, say, in Halton Hills or the Halton region who haven't heard the gospel. 
But if for some reason they wanted to, they could probably find a Christian or a church where they could hear it if they wanted to. But there are many nations, many people groups, ethnic people groups around the world where that is not true. And that's why the command to go is uniquely tied to reaching those unreached people groups. Because if there's already established church and believers in that midst, well, we can support that church and try and help them be better at reaching their, their people, their, um, their neighbors with the gospel. But there's an outpost there where there's a particular need is for us to go to places where there is not that outpost, for us to send people there. Those places are the hardest to go to. There's a reason they're unreached. Takes hard work. But that's what we're called to do to go and make disciples of all nations. There is, there's important implications for us to be thinking about with this. Yes, we need to be making the gospel known in our own community. We also need to be thinking hard about how we go. You know, it's, it's one thing to go to a place like, say, Mexico or South Africa. And you are going to a different culture. But the, there is an existing Christian community there, existing Christians, existing church. You'd really be going to do something that would be very similar to what you could do here in Canada. It's an entirely different thing to go somewhere where there really is not in that area, in that region, amongst that people group, an established witness. Now, missiologists have said when less than 2% of the population is evangelical Christian, that's generally that, that kind of breaking point. It's, it's a bit arbitrary. It's not a scriptural you know, line, but it, it's getting after that heart. I quoted earlier from William Carey's An Inquiry. And I'm going to close the sermon quoting from it again because I think it's really helpful. He writes, It has been objected that there are multitudes in our own nation and within our immediate spheres of action who are as ignorant as the South Sea savages. And that therefore we have work enough at home without going into other countries. That there are thousands in our own land as far from God as possible, I readily grant. And that this ought to excite us to tenfold diligence in our work and in attempts to spread divine knowledge amongst them is a certain fact. but that it ought to supersede all attempts to spread the gospel in foreign parts seems to want proof. Our own countrymen have the means of grace and may attend on the word preached if they choose it. They have the means of knowing the truth and faithful ministers are placed in almost every part of the land whose spheres of action might much be extended if their congregations were but more hardy and active in the cause. But with them, the case is widely different who have no Bible, 
no written language. Many of them have not no ministers, no good civil government, nor any of those advantages which we have. So I set before you this morning the command, go. One word from Jesus. Abraham went. Jesus went. Will we? Let's pray. Father, insofar as I have faithfully applied your word this morning, may a seed be planted that we start work on right now, but that will produce a crop maybe five or ten years from now. This isn't just my prayer. I know from just hearing the amens and seeing the faces, it is a prayer of this church. So we are praying together to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.